Hi, everyone. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. Today on the podcast, we have with us Professor Shimon Shokin, the founding dean of the School of Computer Science here at IDC. After being a tenured professor at NYU for 10 years, Shimon came back to Israel to take part in building a new academic institution from scratch. Over the years, Shimon was also a visiting professor at Harvard and Stanford and served as chairman of the Computer Science Curriculum Committee of Israel's Ministry of Education from 2009 to 2012. Shimon is a passionate educator and has developed revolutionary courses such as NAND to Tetris and Matific, which he will tell us more about today. So first of all, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today, Shimon. It's really great to have you here. Yeah, pleasure. So you have quite the story, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. So let's start at the beginning of your IDC story. It's 1995, and you're a tenured professor at NYU. And you hear about this guy, Uriel Reichmann, who's mm-hmm. planning on building a new university in Israel. Mm-hmm. So what happened next? Well, I knew nothing about uh, Uriel Reichmann, and uh, IDC was a complete uh, unknown, uh, just a random combination of letters. And uh, I got a call from uh, a friend uh, whose name is Jerry Wind, who's a professor at Wharton, and uh Jerry told me that there is this fellow, Uriel Reichmann, who is visiting the East Coast and uh, trying to promote a fantasy of building from scratch, as he said, a new private nonprofit university in Israel. And that uh, this guy, Professor Reichmann, is trying to uh, get in touch with uh, Israelis who teach in uh, major universities in the East Coast. So uh, Jerry invited me to uh, uh, to meet Professor Reichmann, and he told me that uh, that Uri Uriel will visit uh, Wharton on the following day. So this was quite a short notice. And I- I'm sitting in my office in Greenwich Village, and uh, my first immediate uh, reaction was, uh, you know, I completely ignore it and go on with my uh, routine. And then uh, on my way home, I actually had a second thought, and I decided that uh, actually I would like to go to travel back to uh, Penn, which is also where, where I got my PhD. So this was like a homecoming visit. And it's only about an hour and a half on a train from Manhattan. So uh, I decided to go. I, I did go on the following day. I met Professor Reichmann and uh, actually was quite impressed by his passion and zeal and articulation. And uh, he had a tremendous uh, energy and um, and a very exciting vision. And so... Uh, what do you think about his vision was most appealing to you? Well, um, you know, I think it's it's not only a matter of, of Reichmann, it's also a matter of... Uh, my own set of interests and my own uh, dreams. And um, I think that both Professor Reichmann, myself, and uh, several other people who were the founders of this institution were quite frustrated with the state of uh, higher education in Israel uh, back in uh, 95, 1995. This is uh, more than 20 years ago. And... um, Basically, we felt that Israel had a wonderful set of uh, research universities, and yet um, the level of teaching was very troubling, and uh, and academia was not really wide open to anyone who uh, who could and should participate in uh, in academic life, and um, some areas like computer science, for example, were completely closed. Uh, to people who didn't have, you know, top grades and uh, uh, a loving family to uh, to support and propel them uh, forward. So we felt that uh, education 
was far from being uh, democratized in Israel. And uh, once again, the level, the level of teaching was, was very uh, wanting. And uh, all the universities were in severe uh, financial distress. You know, all of them ran and still run incredible deficits of hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, all the universities were based on uh, state funding, what is sometimes called in uh, Wall Street, uh, other people's money. <laughs> and when you manage other people's money, there's no problem running deficits because it's not your money. And uh, we felt that uh, there was a room for trying another model for uh, higher education which is a subject that was very dear to our life uh, to our uh, hearts because all of it all of us spent uh, you know all our mature life teaching at universities studying at universities and uh, and we were thinking about a way to sort of alleviate this frustration and uh, and build something uh, right and do it from scratch without getting any help from the government or from taxpayer money uh, our dream was to be completely self-sufficient, and I'm very proud to say that after 25 years of operation, IDC has never ran a deficit, which is quite incredible. Amazing. Yeah. And this is really thanks to the uh, fantastic management of Professor Reichmann. Uh, he, he was and still is the driving force in this, uh, in this uh, adventure. So the vision sounds incredible. And it proved to be, you know, to, yeah. to work. But 95, you're, you have a tenured position, which is what most people in an academic career mm -hmm. strive for. How did you make this decision to leave your life in New York and to move your family back to Israel to follow a dream? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the tenure which indeed is a, sort of a defining event in, uh, in the career of a uh, of, uh, of an academia person, for me, it wasn't such a, a major event. I mean, when I got the tenure, I remember the next day I thought, all right, what's next? <laughs> and um, I'm always looking for adventures. And, um, and NYU was an adventure. You know, I, I didn't come to NYU from, uh, from Brooklyn. You know, I came to NYU from uh, Ranana. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so uh, getting to NYU was also uh, a huge change in my life because I'm born and raised Israeli, and so is my wife. And yet, uh, after living 15 years in America and uh, raising three children in America, the oldest of, of, of which was um, 12 by then, uh, Iris and I, my, my wife and I, began feeling that, uh, surprisingly enough, that maybe we don't really belong to America. And this feeling was uh, intensified where, when the children began speaking English to us. And uh, we found ourselves struggling with Hebrew and English, you know. And managing these two cultures at yeah. home. Now, when you live in Manhattan, uh, you feel, you don't feel that you are in America. You feel like citizen of the world because everyone is a stranger. Very few people that you meet in, in New York actually were born, born and raised in New York. And there are, you know, numerous uh, foreign people and uh, uh, people who came from different states in America. So, you know, being a, a foreigner in New York is kind of the default. And yet at some point we moved to the suburbs and we lived in uh, Long Island. And I was, uh, and we basically we established uh, the, the American dream. We had a lovely house and uh, a car and uh, uh, 40 minutes commute from my office in, uh, in Greenwich Village and beautiful parks and uh, fantastic uh, school district and so on. And yet the neighbors were very homogenic. You know, this was like Americana suburbia in its yes. best. Desperate housewives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, so once we moved to Long Island, uh, I, both of us felt um, more and more uh, alienated to the surrounding, to our immediate uh, surrounding. We felt at home when we went to work in New York, but coming back, we, we began asking, asking ourselves, you know, do we want to spend the rest of our life in this suburb? And we realized that if it, won't, if, if it will not be this suburb, it will be some other suburb in California or wherever. And so, um, and also at some point, uh, Iris, my wife, uh, said something uh, very perceptive and I think very, very clever. She, she said that, um, you know, the more we live in America, the more there will be a, a, a gap building between us and our children. So that in a few years, we, Iris and I, will have a whole set of um, memories, nostalgia, culture, language, books, music, and all these things will be completely foreign to our children. And so basically, we'll, we'll be a family which is torn uh, culturally. And, and otherwise, between, you know, two sections, parents and children. And this was, you know, once, once we began to talk about it, we realized that this is a quite, a, a quite a troubling uh, verdict, you know, uh, a state of affairs. And so when this uh, meeting with Uri uh, happened, I think that somehow it, it fell on uh, fertile ground. Both of I us, Iris and I, were very comfortable in, in where we were. You know, professionally, we were at the top of the game, and uh, financially and otherwise. And yet, uh, on, on other dimensions, we felt ready to make a change. And also, the situation in Israel back then was quite um, uh, optimistic because uh, uh, Itzhak Rabin, was uh, still alive, and uh, the peace process began to uh, uh, to blossom, and uh, so people in Israel were very upbeat back in uh, 1995. So we returned, you know, and three months later, Rabin was shot. Wow! And, uh, and what a state to come home to! Yeah, yeah, and this was the beginning of. Uh, of uh, you know, of the process in which we find ourselves now. If you want to talk about it, <laughs> <laughs> maybe on another podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Oh, but um, it sounds like you you've realized your American dream and you were ready to yeah. to follow a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So talked about the IDC story a bit. I want to get into your two courses that you mm -hmm. developed. So we have Nanta Tetris and Matific. So let's start with Nanta Tetris. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the course, why you developed it, um, what the inspiration behind it was? And also, I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering what a NAND is. Mm -hmm. So let's get into all of that. All right. So basically, uh, you know, connecting to what I said earlier, I joined IDC And I started up the uh, School of Computer Science, and I was dean of this school for about 15 years. I don't remember exactly how long. And then at some point, I stepped down because it was too much and, um, and went back to teaching like a regular faculty member. And I was looking for some big project, you know, not sort of writing one more paper or doing another research. So I, I was looking for something big. And something big for me is something that takes at least three years to complete. <laughs> and uh, I remember walking into the office of my colleague, uh, Noam Nissan, who was then a professor at IDC. Now he's the dean of computer science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And uh, we began talking about mutual interests and so on. And it turned out that both of us You know, we didn't know it, but, but both of us were very keen about computer science fundamentals. And uh, we had this dream of building a computer from scratch. And from scratch in computer science means 
from the most elementary logic gates that you can think of. So most people know, um, have heard about things like AND, OR, XOR as logic gates, you know, simple truth tables and so on, where it turns out that there is even a, a more fundamental and simple gate called NAND, and it's not important, you know, what exactly a NAND does, but basically it's a very simple black box that gets two binary signals, zero and ones, and, uh, and outputs a binary signal. That's all. And it turns out that uh, all the computers in the world and all the cell phones in the world are based on billions of such NAND gates, which are wired in a very creative and crazy ways in order to deliver uh, a piece of hardware that can execute software. It's a little bit like our brains are made out of neurons. So the neuron in itself is, uh, conceptually, it's a simple device. I mean, chemically and otherwise, it's a very complex device, but, but conceptually, it's a device that takes many inputs, computes some function, and outputs it, you know, through the outgoing, uh, uh, synapse or whatever it is. And, uh, and so just like the brain is made up from, numerous atoms which are wired in a very special way, so so is the artificial computer. Same story. And the question, of course, is how to how to wire it <laughs> in a way that delivers uh, the required uh, functionality. And so Noam and I began to work on it. And uh, at the beginning, everything was very tentative. We were not sure that we could actually do it. But we began building from these NAND gates uh, more and more advanced uh, functionality. So we built something called the multiplexer, which is a more advanced logic gate. And then we built a little uh, register. And then we took a couple of such registers and we built a memory unit. And then we built something called an arithmetic logic unit. And from it, we built uh, a CPU, a processor. And we began piecing these things together and, and boom, all of a sudden we had a computer that could run programs. This took us about two years. And uh, in order to build this computer, we also designed very fancy software tools, which are called hardware simulators, with which you build such uh, devices and simulate them. And that's exactly how people work at companies like Intel and Apple Computer and so on. You build the computer on a workstation by simulation. And only when, when the simulated computer works to your satisfaction then you take all the programs that you wrote for all these chips, you send them to some company in Taiwan, and the company in Taiwan knows how to actually realize this logic in silicon and, and actually build the computer. So from the simulator to the actual hardware. Yeah, so from the simulator to the actual hardware, for a computer scientist, is not a terribly interesting uh, issue. You know, let the Taiwanese uh, worry about it. <laughs> or the people in Kiryat Gat who build uh, computers for for Intel. Uh, for us, you know, the fun starts from the logic gate upward. And um, so we built this computer, and then we had a bare-bone computer that could run very primitive programs written in machine language. And then we decided to go on and bring it up to a level that this computer will be able to run programs written in a language like Java or Python. This took another two or three years. You know, we developed uh, a whole set of tools which are well known in computer science, like an assembler, compiler, virtual machine, operating system. Every one of these things took about six months to a year to develop for Norm and I. And also we had a wonderful group of students, IDC students, who helped us build all these things. To develop all of these from NAND. Yeah, from NAND, from basically like, you know, from the basic neuron. And then... Uh, we started writing a book that describes what we did and brings it to a point where anyone else with some basic training in computer science will be able to repeat and replicate and do exactly the same thing. And from the beginning, we decided that everything that we do will be open source and freely available. So we uploaded all our materials, software tools, and the book to the internet. We built a site, and we began telling friends about it from academia. And before we knew what, you know, thousands of people were using it all over the world. And uh, and it caught like fire. 
And by now, more than 400 universities are teaching courses based on Nantu Tetris. We called it Nantu Tetris because the game, the first game that we developed on this computer was Tetris. And I remember that uh, when, when I was playing with this game in, in, in my room, in my office uh, back home, at some point, my young son came in. Actually, the first game was not Tetris. The first game was much simpler. It was just a single brick falling down, like, okay. like a Tetris brick. And we had two arrows to move the brick right and left as it fell down. This was the first game that I wrote. And I remember playing with I, I was playing with it for hours <laughs> because I was so excited to see this thing working on a computer that I built, you know, uh, uh, this this game was written in a language that I designed. It was translated to machine language by a compiler that I wrote. Uh, the uh, binary code worked on a computer that I built. So we, we built the whole process, you know, from none. Incredible. Yeah. And then I remember my son com, com, coming, he was, I think, six or seven years old, into uh, into the uh, my office and he sort of pulling me to do something. And I said, go away. I'm playing a game. You know, and I was moving this brick from the right to the left, from the left to the right. The brick is falling. I'm moving it. I remember my son looking at me, you know, with a complete, uh, how do you say? Confused. Uh, rachamim, rachamim, oh. pity, looking at me with pity and said, Dad, these are the games that you play? Come to my room. I'll show you some games. <laughs> Leveling up your yeah. video game status. Yeah. <laughs> right. So by now, there are thousands of games written on, uh, on the computer is called Heck. We call the computer Heck. So thousands of games written for Heck. Does it stand for anything cool, Heck? Or? Uh, hacking in computer science is uh, it's, it's a very rich verb. It, it, it connotes both breaking, breaking in the way of you know, breaking a code, you know, breaking a key, breaking a lock. But hacking is also... It also connotes uh, curiosity and trying to get to the bottom of things, you know, and understand things completely it means hacking. Which seems like a theme with you. Right. So, so <laughs> hack was, uh, was the name of, uh, of the computer and, and, and the language was called Jack, the, the high level language, which means nothing. And um, so because everything was open source and free, Numerous people adopted it, and, and I guess also because it was well done. Uh, and by now, as I said, you know, many universities use it, and uh, I teach a course, actually two courses on Coursera, that have about 150,000 students take it, you know, as we speak. And um, it became maybe the most uh, highly rated course in computer science on the internet, which is fun. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and actually, you know, I, I don't want to brag. I don't but like, please do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Schweitzer, but I must tell you that when Norm and I started working on it, after about one year of work, we knew that it's going to be a hit. We, we could foresee it. It was obvious that we, that we did something very elegant and very beautiful and um, and that's another thing which I which I strongly believe in. You know, beauty. You know, I think that when you build something beautiful, it's going to succeed. And uh, one reason why it was so beautiful is because Noah, my colleague, is a superstar computer science uh, theoretician, and uh, everything that he does is very sort of minimal and elegant and symmetric and so on. And um, so we came up with with a beautiful design that actually worked. You know, it wasn't obvious that it, it can be done. By the way, theoretically, everyone knows that you can build a computer from uh, elementary logic gates because, you know, that's how computers are built. But no one's ever tried it before. Yeah, but no one ever, try, no one ever tried to go all the way. You know, there are, some, there are numerous people who spend all their lives in in sort of one tier or one level from the 20 levels that we... Of computer science. Yeah, of yeah. computer science. So most people deal on, only with one niche. And, and what we did was a cross-section of, of the whole field. 
And that's one reason why the course became so popular, because um, there are many computer science students who don't fully understand how computers really work. You know, yeah, from they, the ground up. Yeah, so they can write programs in, in Java or Python and so on, and they understand some algorithms and data structures and so on. But, you know, they are kind of losing the forest for the trees. And so uh, this course gives you a great kind of uh, empowering feeling that you finally understand the whole, you understand the beast because you, you built it yourself. Uh, so that's, that's a principle that I, another principle that I, I strongly believe in, which is uh, hands-on. You know, I think that the best way to learn something is to, if you can, to build it. And, and sometimes you can build it conceptually. You know, you don't have to build it with atoms. You can build it with concepts. With, uh, but you have to do it from the ground up. You know, that's. Uh, I think what's so uh, amazing about this course is that not only did you do that, go from you know from the very bottom of it, mm-hmm. all the way to the top, but also make it so accessible for yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because anyone can take it. And uh, in fact, most of the people who take this course are not even students. They are either developers, you know, software developers who didn't have a formal education and want to understand how the computer works. Or it may even be uh, Google engineers who finally understand the machine that they work on and uh, high school students. And and because it's freely available, you know, Numerous people from India and uh, even Africa and uh, people from all over the world take this course and uh, great feeling. It's amazing. It's empowering to fully understand something because yeah. it, um, you know, it makes the unknown known. Right. You have more power, control over it. And um, right. also it's a very satisfying feeling to yeah. overcome that challenge and to fully understand something. Yeah, especially when this thing is all around you. You know, computers, cell phones are all around us. So um, what this course does is it gives you the ability to, to understand kind of in the marrow of your bones how the most important machine in the world works. So that's... See inside the black box, so to speak. All right. Now, the second course, Matific, is a math program for children, but it's not an ordinary course. Can you tell us a bit more about what makes this program so unique? Yeah. So that's that's not exactly a course. It's a it's a company, Matific, that um, I started up together with... uh, friends uh, about 10 years ago and I did it when I was on sabbatical from uh, IDC actually I was at Stanford during this year and uh, basically this was the time when tablets came out especially the uh, Apple iPad was the first tablet and uh, I I remember that we started playing with tablets Uh, myself and a friend called uh, Shmulik London and we felt that the tablet uh, opened up new opportunities for teaching, you know, because of the um, uh, very sort of uh, graceful uh, user machine interface and the ability to move things with your fingers and so on, and open up windows and whatever. You know, everything that we take for granted today, back then, was, was quite an, an innovation that you could do it on a $100 tablet. Well, back then it was more than $100, but, but we knew that it's going, go, it's going to go down to 100 And so we felt that, once again, you could teach things like computer science, mathematics, science in general, by developing uh, simulations and games that will enable every child who has an access to a cell phone to... Um, to kind of feel the subject, you know, in in his or her uh, ten fingers, so to speak, to get the hands-on feeling of of what what science is, what mathematics is, and so on. And so we began asking ourselves, how can we teach elementary mathematics? You know, the kind of mathematics that you learn in uh, first grade elementary school uh, using games and. Uh, and so we developed several games, and once again, we felt that we hit on something uh, interesting. And so um, this time, we, we felt that you know there'll be no way 
to develop something serious without starting a company because we knew that we had to raise a lot of money in order to develop something meaningful. And so we started up this company called Matific. Um, we, I remember our first uh, customer was Pearson, the, the book publisher. Yeah. And I remember flying from California to New York to give uh, the Pearson guys uh, a presentation. And back then we had nothing. All we had was a fancy PowerPoint uh, presentation. And uh, I, gave them, I gave them some examples of games that didn't really run. They run only on PowerPoint, but it was hard to tell that it was PowerPoint and not the real thing. And they were, you know, very, uh, very impressed. And so they gave us uh, a nice sum of money, which helped us to, to start up the company. And then we raised, uh, you know, a lot more money from other investors and so on. And we uh, started to hire people. You know, by now, this company employs about 100 people, you know, about 60 people in Israel, 40 people all over the world. And we developed about a thousand computer games that teach every aspect of mathematics from kindergarten to sixth grade, which is the end of elementary school. And we translated, uh, we translated the software to, um, I think something like 60 languages by now. So it's widely used, uh, all over the world, you know, in, including in Arab countries. Uh, and, and what would you say makes this program unique? How does it teach math in a new way? Well, you know, it teaches math by play. You know, it's not, there's no teaching, really. You know, no one stands and explains things. But, you know, you get some marbles and some uh, strings and uh, some uh, scissors and glue, and uh, you get a task to build something or take apart something. And as you do it, you learn mathematics. So, you know, for example, the first game that we play normally, you know, you can start anywhere you want, but what I normally advise is to play a game in which you put together a necklace out of uh, a string and a bunch of beads. So the mission is to create a necklace that contains five beads. But the beauty of the game is that the child has two bowls of two different kinds of beads. So there are green beads and, and red beads. And we, we tell the child, build a necklace of five beads, and the, the child you know, takes beads and put them on the, on the necklace. And uh, once he has five beads, we say, wonderful, and see, give positive feedback and so on. But then at some point, we tell the child, you know, in case he didn't realize, you have two kinds of beads. Why don't you use uh, more than one kind? So the child builds um, a necklace of, let's say, seven, be seven beads using five reds and, uh, and two greens, okay? Well, once the child does it, we put an equation on, on the screen and we say five plus two equals seven. And then we tell the child, well, try another combination of beads. So the child builds uh, something with uh, three reds and four greens. And, and we write below this equation, we write another equation, three plus four also equals seven. And then we say, you know, try to build uh, a necklace with alternating pattern of beads. So it uses one, 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 one. And, and we said, you know, one red plus one green plus one red plus one green equals four. And, and so by playing this game, Without ever saying this, the child has learned addition. The child learned that addition is a commutative, that it doesn't matter in which order you add up the beads. Uh, the, the child learns that, you know, it's not only that uh, 2 plus 3 equals 5, it's also 1 plus 2, you know, plus 1 is also 4 in this case, or whatever it is. And so you see many different equations popping up, and all these equations are results of your own work. So you actually build the knowledge, literally speaking. The knowledge is, is built by yourself and by the results of your actions. Okay, Through just exploring yeah. the numbers and the beads and all of a sudden being familiarized with these operators, right. what is plus, what is equal. 
Right. And this is the simplest example. I mean, we have more than a thousand games. Some of them are very, very fancy. Some of them look like fancy computer games. You know, when you navigate boats and, you know, things like this, when you learn geometry. And, uh, and, and once again, the, the children learn abstract conceptual uh, uh, mathematics from concrete actions. Which, which is, you know, something that I truly believe in. And, uh, and it's not only that. I think also the games are quite challenging. You know, some of the games are, you know, we make no uh, uh, discount, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, uh, we are not afraid to challenge uh, kids. And I, I think if I can summarize my approach to education in two words, they will be, Rigor and vigor. You know, I, I want, <laughs> Explain. I, yeah, I, I want the tasks that you give students to be rigorous. You know, I want them to work hard. And uh, I don't like sugarcoating and babysitting. I want them to sort of look at something which looks uh, may look completely uh, maybe forbidding and uh, mysterious at the beginning. But then gradually... I want them to connect to the subject matter. And and here enters the other words, which is a, a, a vigor in, in the sense that I want this experience to be vigorous so that, so that the surrounding will be encouraging and uh, that, that, that you'll be encouraged to explore and to open up black boxes. And there'll be lots of feedback. You know, when you do something good, something well, you'll get positive feedback. When you do something uh, uh, bad, you will also get positive feedback. You know, it's great that you tried this uh, way. And by the way, it's, it's not a bad move at all. But, you know, you have to modify something in order to get closer to the right, uh, to, to, to the right direction. And, and this is something that I learned in America. I remember when my kids played baseball in the suburbs. <laughs> I went to watch these baseball games in the junior league. And uh, I remember the, the coach standing behind the kid who is uh, the better and tries to hit the, the ball. And, you know, most of the hits miss the ball in baseball. But every time the kid would miss the ball, the coach would say, great swing. You know, <laughs> he managed to swing the bat, which, you know, for an Israeli like myself, it was like nuts. I mean, big deal you know <laughs> you manage to move this the stick from one point to another but for the american parent or the coach who are you know raised on positive feedback i think it's the effort that counts yeah it's the effort that counts which which i liked i like this approach and uh there's also the idea of um it doesn't matter if you win or lose it's how you play the game yeah and, right? and you know you just have to keep moving you know you have to go in some direction eventually you, you it's it's much better than sitting you know and, and waiting for something to solve itself so you may go in the in the wrong direction but you develop some momentum and energy and next time you try, you know. And I think you need to become comfortable with failure, right? Because if absolutely. you're learning something new, you're going to fail um, many absolutely. times. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, one of the biggest uh, lessons in education is to encourage failures. And uh, I think it was Churchill that said that uh, courage is the ability to go from one failure to another without losing enthusiasm. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, but it's really that. It's really just having the, um, first of all, the enthusiasm and the the hope that at some point, you know, you, you will succeed. You right. will understand this new thing that you're yeah, learning. Definitely, definitely. You will hit the ball. Right. right, right. <laughs> so it's clear from your story and your career that you're passionate about education. Can you tell us a bit where you think that passion comes from? Did you set out to become an educator from the start? Um, well, you know, I look back at my family. Well, both my parents and my grandparents never went to uh, university. And uh, they hardly went to high school. So my grandfather, both grandfathers didn't go to high school. They started working when they were teenagers in order to put... Uh, bread on the table. And yet both of them eventually became uh, 
you know, quite uh, 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 sort of star quality intellectuals. You know, bo- both of my grand- paternal great-grandparents. And uh, one of them was born and raised in Germany and the other in Israel. Back then it was Palestine. Now that's my my uh, mother's uh, father was an Israeli. My father's father was uh, a German. So I'm right in the middle. You know, I'm uh, half uh, Sephardic, half uh, Ashkenazi. And uh, and once again, both of them were, you know, world class scholars, and well known also uh, in the scholarship. And my parents met in high school in uh, Jerusalem, and both of them managed to uh, to graduate from high school, but they didn't go on to study. My father was actually admitted to Oxford University, and he started studying at Oxford for, for, for one year, but then the war started. This is 1939, so he dropped out, joined the British Army, spent eight years in the British Army, you know, throughout the war and a little bit later. And then he spent the rest of his life uh, in the Israeli army, and he never went back to school. And he was kind of, also was a frustrated intellectual, and so was my mother. But when I say frustrated, only they were frustrated because they didn't have formal degrees. But they were lifelong self-learners, and uh, our home was stacked with thousands of books and records and uh, uh, art books and, and art in general. And so all my life I was uh, encouraged and, uh, uh, you know, not, not necessarily verbally, but I was, I was surrounded with art, books, music. And I think the message that I got uh, implicitly was that education is the right thing to do. You know, to educating yourself and keep asking questions and so on, and so uh, and so I went. I served in the army for five years, very tough service, and which had nothing to do with scholarship. <laughs> and then when I got out, I remember that I was uh, really I felt very hungry and thirsty for knowledge, for studying. I felt that my my brain was almost emptied in in this long uh, army service. And so I think one week after I finished my army service, I started studying. You know, this was back in 1976. And it wasn't common back then to travel around the world before you go to study. So I went straight to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and I studied. I, I, I went to study mathematics, not because I liked mathematics, but but because I thought that. Um, well, I didn't. I, I didn't say the whole. I didn't tell the whole story. But my grandfather started up uh, a little newspaper uh, known today as Haaretz. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and a publishing house called Otsa uh, Choken and uh, Shoken Books in New York. And th- this is the guy who never had any education. Incredible. Yeah. So, and, and, and quite a few of my relatives, in particular Amos Shoken, uh, my uh, cousin, uh, and Racheli Edelman, they went to work in the family business, you know, in the newspaper, in the uh, Shokan Publishing House, and so on. And I think this is what was expected from me, you know, to do something similar. And and instead of that, I decided to, you know, to, to do something which is completely the opposite. And I went from the world of letters to the world of numbers, and I went I went to study mathematics. I didn't want to do anything which had to do with the family uh, uh, legacy and sort of strike on my own. And uh, so I went to study mathematics, which I really loved, but I didn't feel that I was a great mathematician. And therefore, at some point, I switched to computer science. And uh, I did first first uh, degree and a master's degree 
And then I actually tried to work in a, in a normal company. I remember I was back then in America. I went to work in a, in a computer company, which was called um, Wang Laboratories. It doesn't exist anymore <laughs> in Boston. And I worked there for about three months. And then I realized that work is not for me. <laughs> I mean, work in a cubicle, writing code. Office life. Yeah, yeah. office life is not for me. And uh, and I basically ran away back to academia and applied to a PhD program. And uh, ever since, I you know I really enjoy the life of academia. I think it's the best life uh, possible. Uh, so highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's something that you would recommend to people starting out today. Yeah, I think that uh, especially today, you know, because today. There's so many other temptations, uh, you know, there are all sorts of alternative ways to study. You can study in Coursera and so on, and which is okay. But, you know, if you study outside academia, I think basically it's, it's, more, it's, not, it's more like vocational studies. You know, you study in order to work. But work is not uh, that fun, you know. <laughs> what is more fun is to, you know, the best thing that can happen to you is that by by chance you discover that you like something that you never expected that you like, like poetry, you know, or like uh, studying a foreign language, you know. Um, and this is something that really happens typically in academia because in academia you're forced to take courses that you never wanted to take. And I guess about half of these courses are not right up your alley, which is okay, so you suffer, a little bit, but but the other half kind of open up your horizons and say, "Gee, you know, I didn't know that I that, that cognitive psychology was so exciting." You know, I, I I came to study psychology because my dream was to become a therapist. But then all of a sudden, you learn cognitive psychology and say, "Wow, you know, that's where I want to be. I want to be in cognitive psychology. I want to go into, I don't know, artificial intelligence or decision theory or." psychological uh, applications of economics and so on. And so, and this happens only because someone forced you to take a course which was not in your uh, predetermined plan. So this is, uh, there's a word in English which I always uh, stumble when I try to say, I think it's called serendipity. Yes, serendipity. Serendipity. And, and this is, you don't get serendipity when you study courses in Coursera. Because you select your own courses, you kind of set up your, your own plan. But a young man and a young woman, they don't really know uh, what... Um, they don't know themselves yet, they, they don't, don't know what they, they want. Exactly, they don't, they, don't, they, they don't know what is their calling yet. And one good way to find your calling is to try different things. And, yeah, uh, and you get good information also from knowing what you don't like, discovering the things that right. don't work for you. Right. And also in, in academia just opens you up to all of these different opportunities. Right. And, and you know, I think, the, I think the word scholarship, I think it comes from the Hebrew word eshkol. Hmm. And eshkol means a cluster, cluster of things. And that's the whole idea, you know, general education, open up. So I'm, you know, very much uh, in favor of education. I'm very much in favor of the American model of education, which is that... How does it, it differ? Wow. Uh, well, in America, the uh, undergraduate degree is four years of studies instead of three. In the first two years, you are forced to study general education. Like a liberal arts yeah, degree. Yeah, you, you cannot choose a, a major yet. I mean, you can choose it, but it's mean, It's meaningless. So, for example, at Harvard, they have, I think, 10 different concentrations. It's called concentration, which is basically eshkolot, clusters of courses. So one concentration is called um, fine arts, and the other one is uh, social sciences, and then the other one is quantitative sciences and life science and so on. Every student at Harvard must take something like three courses in every one of these concentrations. And these are very rigorous courses taught by the best professors in, in each department. So it doesn't matter if you're going to study literature, you're going to study some physics and some, 
you know, a natural science and some philosophy and whatever, and then you can go study literature or computer science. It doesn't matter. So in the Ivy League universities, you get um, a generalist view of the world, which is fantastic. And then you have two years of, of concentration in which you actually choose a major and, uh, and plow in. Um, so it's, it's quite frustrating that we don't have something like this in Israel. And in fact, this has been one of my dreams, one of my unrealized dreams at IDC is to offer something like this at IDC also. And, a more uh, classical education also, yeah, a history of ideas. And right, exactly. The great, great books, you know. Uh, and so I think that ideally at IDC, we, we would like to, uh, to create the th at least the first year, I think, should have been what we call in Hebrew Shana uh, Ben Tchumit, or truly mm. interdisciplinary year in which you are immersed with uh, the greatest, uh, you know, classical works and uh, all sorts of general skills like, you know, presentation skills and uh, communication skills and so on, languages. And you don't commit yourself to any subject in particular. And only in the next two years or three years, if we manage to extend it to four years, only then you choose a subject and you and you begin to concentrate in it. So we had numerous discussions at IDC, you know, trying to do it. It, it always fell on There's all a sorts tension. Of There's a tension between Israeli culture. Absolutely. It's very practical. Absolutely, exactly. And save yeah. time and get it done. Yeah, and, and that's also why people, you know, it uh, sounds... Uh, uh, patronizing to say, but, but many Israelis are completely ignorant about uh, Western culture, uh, about Greek, Greek culture, uh, European culture. And, uh, you know, they may be great uh, computer scientists or engineers or whatever, but, but they know nothing about uh, what I think really counts. Okay? I think knowing these things kind of orients you in the world. There's so much mystery in the world. There's so many things that have been thought up and, um, you know, investigated. Mm -hmm. And not knowing that kind of um, leaves you with this um, weird amnesia, right? Like you, you're born into the world, into the 21st century, and you think this is all there has ever been. Exactly, exactly. And that's, uh, that's a big mistake. <laughs> I mean, you can live on like this. That's okay. But, but, uh, but it works but, for but, some people. Yeah. But, but you can live a much richer life if you're exposed to these things. And you, well, I, I hope that you guys will be able to bring yeah. something like that about. Yeah. I would have personally loved to sign up to yeah, that. <laughs> maybe we'll finesse it somehow. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Shimon, this has been a fascinating conversation. There's right. so much more we could talk about, I'm right. sure. Okay. For the sake of your time, I think this is a good place to stop. So thank you for All coming right. to speak thank with us. Thank you for having me. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Fidron. This is The Bigger Picture. Thank you for listening. Till next time.